Good day, friends. It is the 27th day of the One Year Bible. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible Podcast. We're going to jump right in, look at Exodus chapter 4 and 5 and Matthew chapter 18. Let's go. Exodus chapter 4, God had just shown up to Moses and gave him a charge to to lead his people to freedom. He said, I want to pick up in chapter 3 verse 19, God said to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God knows Pharaoh's heart. And an interesting thing as we continue to read, there's a mystery about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Here at the end of chapter 3, the Lord says that I know that he will not let you go. I know his heart is against you. And ten times in the book of Exodus, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And ten other times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and he would not listen to the word of God. So, is this conundrum, whose fault is it? Well, we'll talk more about this, but one thing that I've been thinking about this, in the New Testament, it says that even right now in this earth, there is a restrainer, one who keeps us all, Christians and non-Christians, from getting as bad as it would possibly get without him. And this is the Holy Spirit. This is in Second Thessalonians, uh, I think it's chapter 1. And it says, the one who restrains will do so no longer. I think with Pharaoh, we get a picture of God allowing Pharaoh to go the way that he wanted to go. And so there's this balance between God hardening his heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. Well, anyway, we jump in to chapter 4 and we get Moses, like us, making excuses when God comes knocking. Excuse number 3, or Moses trying to get out of it, number 3 is, they won't believe me. They won't listen to me. And then God answers that and gives him two signs. He gives him a staff that turns into a snake, and he he also has his hand inside his cloak turn white as snow, like leprosy, and then he takes it out. It's it's clean again. He says, these are signs that you can show to the people uh, of Israel that, and we see this at the end of the chapter, that they, they do believe um, because of the signs and because of Moses' testimony. Well, that's that's number three. Number four, trying to get out of it. Oh God, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. We know uh, from other sources that it was really important if you're in the court of Pharaoh that you would have learned to speak eloquently. So maybe Moses is making this up. Or maybe he was just a flunky. He never made it very far in Pharaoh school. I don't know. Likely because he wrote these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think he's pretty smart. I think that, yes, these books are inspired by God, but I think Moses is a pretty smart man. And so this is just an excuse. And I know that's true, just like us, because excuse number five, Moses trying to get out of it. Number five, he basically just says, oh God, um, if I could gain your favor, please send somebody else, send anybody else. And the Lord gets mad at him and says, God's anger burned against him. And he's like, fine, I'm going to give you Aaron. Aaron will be there to help you out. He's going to meet Aaron, and before he does that, one interesting note is here it says, um, he gives him more instruction about what to say, and so he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And that's an important thing. Pharaoh would have thought of himself as the firstborn son of the gods. The Egyptians 
worshipped their pharaohs and enshrined them, embalmed them, and built these pyramids to the to the pharaohs as gods. And so to be the firstborn son is to be a son of God. But no, God says that Israel is my firstborn son. And God says, say, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And that, that's eventually what happens. That's the 10th plague. And it's the it's the straw, we could say, that breaks the camel's back. Well, there's this weird episode where Moses and his wife Zipporah are, are on the way back to Egypt, and they stop at an oasis, a lodging place, and the Lord shows up, and it says that the Lord met, in NIV it says Moses, and sought to put him to death. But in the Hebrew, also translated this way in the ESV, it just says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Moses' name is not in this paragraph in, in Hebrew. So who's the him? Is it Moses? Maybe. Is it Moses' son, Gershom? I think it is. I think it is Moses' son. Either way, this is bizarre, isn't it? It goes on and says, Zipporah, knowing that the Lord was going to kill either his her husband or her son, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched or another translation, threw it at Moses' feet, or it doesn't say Moses, it's it's his feet. We don't know who he, she threw it at, but she is, she's pissed. She is mad. And she cuts off the foreskin of either uh, Moses or her son and throws it at, at one of them. And she says, you're my bloody husband. You're a bridegroom of blood to me uh, because of the circumcision. So either Moses or his son, or both of them were not circumcised. And this to the Lord is heinous. Now we think, well, why didn't the Lord try to put him to death earlier? Well, I think we have some missing information here. Most likely the Lord had shown up to him and said, circumcise your son or circumcise yourself. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't He doesn't take seriously the covenant that God made with his, his great father, Abraham, which we remember is in Genesis chapter 17. And the more I think about this, there has to be a connection between what's right up above the the Israel being the firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. And if you oppose me, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And then he talks about this killing of either Moses or Moses's firstborn son. There's an importance of being a part of Israel. And we see in the New Testament, who is Israel? All those who are sons of the promise. That means if you believe in Jesus, you are a part of Israel. And sad to say that the Apostle Paul and, and uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, they say just because you are born into this family line, but don't have faith, you're not part of Israel. So there's something about this being a part of the people of God. And Moses, it seems, had not incorporated his, his son, his firstborn son, into the people of God. That's just me thinking out loud. What do you think? Anyway, back to the story. He meets, he goes alone. Uh, his wife is so mad at him, she goes back to her dad, Jethro. And then he meets Aaron along the way. They go to the elders of Israel and they speak the words and show them the signs. So this is an important thing. How how did the, the prophets like Moses have authority? Well, these two things. They had words from God that accorded with uh, the previous teaching that they knew about Yahweh. And they did signs that confirmed that. So that is something that the prophets would do. We see that here with Moses. 
at first, the, the elders, they're like, this is great. God has shown up. And then it doesn't go well because Pharaoh refuses to give them time off work to go into the desert to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And they up their work. And we'll just see this continuing worse and worse throughout this, this book of Exodus. All right. So we see at the end here of chapter 5, Moses turns to the Lord and and he says the evil that he's experiencing comes both from the Lord and from Pharaoh. He says, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done, e he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. You know, our timetable and God's timetable hardly ever agree. We know about the Lord. What do they say? Uh, as some, I think my wife likes to joke, or we used to joke around, uh, Jehovah Nick, right? God comes just in the nick of time. Never late and seldom early. Well, Moses here doesn't like it. We don't like it either. All right, let's flip over to Matthew. In Matthew 18, Jesus uses the attitude of the disciples to teach all about sin and forgiveness and the community of faith, the church. And he says here, uh, rather than being the greatest, he says, you all need to turn and become like children. And then he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He reminds us that even little children can believe. And then he goes on and talks about the great tragedy it is for those, those little ones in faith who stumble, or it says who caused to sin, who stumble because of others' sin, who are led away uh, and often this word, it's just translated cause to sin. In the older translation, it's cause to stumble. And this stumbling, it's a recurring phrase in the Gospels. And it often means like to stumble, to fall, and not be able to get up on your own. And that's sort of the picture that Jesus uses here. He's saying, if you cause these to sin or to stumble, they are going to be in such a bad place they will, they could be lost because of the sin against them, the sin that causes them to sin. And then he talks about the temptations that are bound to come and the need to get rid of those opportunities, right? He says, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. But what is Jesus really talking about? Should we cut off our hands or our feet if if we, if we do things with our hands or feet that we're not supposed to? Are we supposed to gouge out our eyes if we look at things we're not supposed to? Is that what Jesus is really getting at? I think, I think he goes beyond that. And this is a metaphor for something else that we need to get rid of, which is our evil heart, our wanter, the things that we want. Our wanter leads others to sin. And so Jesus says this is a great tragedy. How do we do this? Well, I think we go back to the beginning of the chapter. We become... Again, like little children, we turn back to the Lord. We humble ourselves. We say, God, I, I can't change my heart. No one can except for you. And if you don't, if you allow my heart to be hardened like Pharaoh's was hardened, I will have no hope. So when we see that our hand, our, our eye, our foot, and the great evil that it's causing us to do or, or tempting us to do, it leads us back to a state of dependence. Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we come meekly and in need to Jesus. I love the parable that Jesus says about the lost sheep and just how it ends up. It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. So that is the goal 
the restoration of lost sheep, those who have stumbled, those who are lost. And then Jesus goes on, and this is not exactly, you know, yes, it's a step-by-step, but it's all about restoring one who was lost, a lost sheep. And so Jesus will say a few things about restoring a brother. So it says, if your brother sins against you, some of the old manuscripts say, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. And that word, tell him your fault, that's a word sometimes used by Paul, the Greek word there, to share the gospel. If your brother sins against you, go and share the gospel with him, or go and tell him what he needs to know. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. So this is a, this is something Jesus says that is true about a brother who sins. And if he listens to you, case closed. Rejoice. You have gained your brother. The lost sheep is home. Now, this is a serious thing. This is not just a minor offense because Jesus says here, if he doesn't listen to you, you have lost your brother. That's, well, literally says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Meaning, if he doesn't listen, you have lost him. So this is a big deal. And so Jesus here is showing us that sin is serious. There are some sins that will lead us to stumble and fall and no longer have faith. Remember the parable of the sower? Sometimes, sometimes the word of the kingdom in us is stolen away by the devil when we don't understand. Sometimes it is choked out by the weeds. Sometimes it is burned up because of the troubles of life. And so Jesus is warning us, don't let that happen to you. Jesus says, don't let that happen to your brothers. If you see it happening to your brothers, your sisters, go to them. It is your responsibility to be a brother. Remember Cain and Abel? Uh, Cain said, what am I, my brother's keeper? He didn't think he was, but we are. Jesus tells us that we are. So he puts in a few things. First is just face-to-face, talk to your brother, talk to your sister in a spirit of humility. Check out Galatians 6 verse 1. Also check out the very beginning of Matthew chapter 7. Then he goes on, he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here he's confirming the things in in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, that you need to have another with you to confirm the word, to share the concern. And again, if they don't listen, he says, take it to the church. This is the second time here uh, that this word church is used in the gospel, and the third time is coming up. It is to take it to those who are fellow disciples, who are part of the assembly of the disciples of Jesus. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And that is a sad thing if one were to get to that place where you are certain that after all these face-to-face heartfelt conversation, one says, no, I refuse to listen. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to repent. I don't believe you. I don't agree with you. I'm going to decide this on my own. I'm going to overrule the word of God and do do it my way. So sadly, we might say, this is sort of a paraphrase, but you know, you are no longer a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. At this time, you're outside of the family of God that has been gathered by Jesus and around Jesus. You're outside. And we see Paul doing this not not out of glee and not out of power, but out of sadness and concern for the person's soul. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The whole chapter is about a man who has fallen away from the faith in grave sin. And at the time, the church is almost celebrating it. They do though, 
put the man out of the church for his discipline and correction. Let me just insert here, to put one out of the church is not to shun. I don't think that's an appropriate practice. I think one who is is acknowledged to be no longer a part of the fellowship, yes, you may not receive communion, but you are welcome always to hear the Word of God so that you might have an opportunity to repent and and to know how much Jesus loves you and to know that God wants to bring you back in as a wandering sheep. And back real quick to the man in Corinth that they did put out. What happened to him? And we can see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, restore him. He has repented. Bring him back into the fold. The goal of this is to do what the story of the lost sheep is, to bring one who has strayed back home. So here Jesus is talking to, uh, you know, you, singular, do this. And then uh, there's this kind of turn in, in verse 18 where it's all plural. Truly I say to all of you, whatever you all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven or will have been bound in heaven. Right? Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, you will actualize or bring about the reality of what's happened in heaven. Your sins are forgiven, you're back in the fold, or your sins are still going to cling to you because you are still in them and refuse to repent. It goes on and talks about answered prayer. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So Jesus tells us here that in the midst of our church life, in wanting to bring lost sheep home, he says, the Father will answer those prayers. And then lastly, he says, I'll be there. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus ups the ante a little bit. In the Mishnah, there were it took 10 men to have a synagogue prayer gathering and to be assured of God's presence. That's what they said. They just made up the number 10. It's a good number. But Jesus says where two or three are gathered. Notice we often use this verse to just say, hey, we're, we're praying and Jesus is present. Well, we know he's present even if we're by ourselves. Here, this is in the context of forgiving sins or sadly binding sins, at least temporarily until one might come to repentance. We don't usually use this verse this way, but that's the way that Jesus uses it. All right, well, lots to think about. Thank you for joining me today. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.